Welcome to the 180 Ministry Podcast. Please check us out at the1-80.org. So we are looking, our major text that we're going to be looking at today is Revelation chapter 18 and verse 1. But as we're preparing to go there, um, one of the things that I've been looking at is um, as we look at this subject of matchless love part 4, the last ray of mercy, is the aspect of Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 10. And I'll share a story connected with that. And also in connection with what we study in this message. So it says in Ephesians 2.10, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God had before ordained that we should walk in them. So God has ordained that we should walk in good works. And the Bible says we are what? God's workmanship. Now, the powerful thing about that word workmanship, the word workmanship in the original Greek language is the word poete. What does that sound like in English? Poetic, or it's the word that we derive the word poetry from, all right? So in other words, what the Bible is literally saying is that we are God's poetry to the world. His spoken word, in a sense, you guys, if you guys have ever heard of that term. So we are God's poetry to the entire planet. When the world looks at us, they see God. They see basically the way that God rhymes. They see the way that he makes sense out of the entire cosmic conflict that we're in. The church was born to be that. The soul that is regenerated in Christ was born to be a specimen through which the world can make sense out of what is going on. That's the powerful thing. Even about, even when you look at the story of Daniel, you have that situation. Daniel was the individual in all of Babylon. He was the only one that can make sense of the catastrophes that would come against Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar looked to him often in order to make sense of dreams and visions. Nebuchadnezzar's grandson, Look to him in order to make sense out of the coming fall of Babylon to interpret the writing on the wall. He was one who could interpret the times, and because he knew how to do so, kings looked to him. And this is what we want, friends. There is a time when inspiration tells us that the Seventh-day Adventist movement will be brought in prominence before the world. As things begin to kick up, God will have a movement of destiny which he can present before the world and the world will look to that movement to make sense out of what is happening. But it can only make sense out of what is happening if we have the relationship with God that Daniel possessed. When the angel came to Daniel, there was a phrase that the angel continually used and that was the angel Gabriel. And he says, O man, greatly Beloved. In other words, heaven and God himself was deeply in love with Daniel. Why? Because Daniel was in love with God. <laughs> it's not that Daniel had, a bet, had some advantage over any one of us. 
It's that friends, as he committed himself to the reception of divine love, he experienced a depth of experience with God that few knew in his generation. And in the same way God is saying to all of us, we have that opportunity to know God on such a deep level that he can come to us and reveal things to us in his word, as the psalmist says, wondrous things out of God's law. Do we want that experience? Amen. Amen. I know I want that experience. So we are God's workmanship. So the church is the vessel that God wants to use to show to the world what he has in store and what is coming. So in light of that, we're going to look at how the church will be used in a powerful way to give God's last message of mercy. But we're going to see in that last message of mercy, it is actually a message of infinite love. So if you have your Bibles with me, go in your Bibles to the book of Revelation chapter 18. Revelation chapter 18, and we're going to look at this today. Revelation chapter 18, and when you are there, say amen. All right, so Revelation chapter 18 and verse 1. Now we're going to do a little recap. Let's see if you guys can remember some of the stuff that we covered when it came to the sanctuary. All right? Now, in the previous chapter, it talks about Babylon and her daughters. And it says Babylon is the mother of harlots, right? So Babylon the Great, let me say it that way, is the mother of harlots. Now, if Babylon the Great, whoever Babylon the Great is, is the mother of harlots, what does a woman represent in Bible prophecy? A church. So that means this is a woman... Babylon is known, she's given actually the pronoun of her or she. It actually says of Babylon that she is the mother of other churches. So then if Babylon is a she, what is Babylon then? A church. But she's the mother of other harlots, other churches. So she is one who has the title of mother church. Now, remember, as we covered this topic, we found out that who is, respectfully speaking, God has his people everywhere scattered throughout the world in every religion. But respectfully speaking, then, who claims that title of Mother Church today? The papal system, right? But if the papal system has daughters and the papal system has been titled as Babylon in Scripture... What are her, her daughters then? They are also harlots and part of Babylon, right? So Babylon the Great is in reference to the papal system. But Babylon in its totality is in a reference, is a reference to every fallen church in the entire world. Fallen meaning they have compromised the truth, Right? they have turned away from the truths of God's word, whether it be in one point or in many points. And some of those points we touched on when we touched on the subject of the sanctuary. Now, the reason I say this is because there's going to be a message that goes to Babylon the Great and to every part of Babylon, to all of the churches at the very end of time. But in order for God to give this message, He's going to send an angel, but he's not sending an angel. And so we're going to look at what that means. He's sending an angel to give the message. 
but he's not sending an angel. Does anyone know what I mean when I say that? Yes, right? <laughs> so basically, to break it down, some of you know what I mean. For those of you who may not know what I mean, that's all right. We're going to break it down and we're going to see what an angel actually represents in Scripture, right? Sometimes it's literal, sometimes it's figurative. So you're with me in Revelation 18? Amen. So it says in Revelation 18, chapter 1, I mean chapter 18, verse 1, it says, and after these things, I saw another what? Angel. But the angel is coming from where? Heaven. Having great power, and the earth was lightened with his glory. Now, if the angel is coming from heaven, that means the glory that goes forth from this angel is coming from where? From heaven. And therefore, if it's coming from heaven, who is the originator of the glory of heaven? God himself. So this is light that is coming from God. This angel itself is coming from God. So as we look at this now, the question is, in Bible prophecy, does anyone know what an angel represents? A messenger of God. Now, as we're looking at this here, you remember, how much of the earth does this angel illuminate? The whole world. It actually says, and the earth was lightened with his glory. So what does this mean, friends? This means that if this angel lightens the entire world with its glory, that means we're not just talking about a messenger, but messengers, plural. So basically, this angel in Revelation chapter 18 and verse 1, speaking in context of the end time, is an entire movement of people that will light up the entire world with God's glory. Does that make sense? All right? So this is powerful. When I was looking at this, I remember the first time I studied this and I began to understand it and began to understand that God had called me to be one of the people that is in that movement that illuminates the entire world. I felt, I felt, wow. Why would God be so mindful of me? that I should be born into this generation to give, to be a part of giving such a message. Friends, each and every one of us are called to be a part of giving the message that we're gonna be looking at here. So we're seeing, while it is an angel, it's not an angel, right? It's a movement that God is going to send, and the movement is heaven ordained. Hence, the Bible symbolizes it as coming down from where? From heaven itself. Now, notice the angel has great power. The word there in the original language means authority. Some of your translations, if you have a different translation than the King James, it probably even says that. So the angel descends and he has great authority. Now, when we're looking for the authority, if this angel has great authority, the angel has glory and it has authority. But where is it getting that glory, did we say? From heaven. And where is it getting then the authority? From God, same place. So it has to mean that this movement would have the authority of God on its side. 
Now, if we were to look for a place on earth where the authority of God is centered, where would it be? Okay, sort of, yeah, okay, church, but it's something that the church has. The church has that authority, but it has the authority because of something it possesses, the word of God, right? So it has the word of the living God. And in that word, centralized in that word, you have the law of God, right? So you have the word and you have the law itself. And in that law, we covered it before in our series on the sanctuary, there is a place in that law where God's authority is centralized. Yes, the fourth commandment, right? So as we look at this then, we're realizing, whoa, this movement, it has God's authority on its side, meaning it has God's word, it has his very law, and it has the seal of the law, the fourth commandment, right? Does that make sense? All right. So as we're moving along now, so the, this, this angel, this movement has the power of God. It has the authority of God, meaning it has God's word, but not just God's word. It seeks to live in harmony with all the principles of God's word. And then it says, the earth was lightened with his glory. Now, before we come to that word glory, I want us to look at verse 2, because many times when talking about this angel, we start off at verse 2 to 4, but we skip verse 1. So think about it. The movement is going forth, and what, is the, what does the angel do? What does the movement do? It says, he cried mightily with a strong voice, saying, Babylon the great is fallen, is fallen. And you remember, who is Babylon the great? Was that? Yes, right? So as we look at that now, it says, Babylon is fallen, is fallen, and has become the habitation of devils, the hold of every foul spirit, and a cage of every unclean and hateful bird. Now, friends... Habitation of devils, hold of every foul spirit, cage of every unclean and hateful bird is all the same thing. It just means that this system, respectfully speaking, by this time in earth's history, when this word is fulfilled, it will be completely dominated by demonic forces. Right now, that is already happening, but it has not reached its climax just yet. But the time is coming where Babylon, now filled with demonic power, it will come to the point where it is dominated by demonic power. And when that happens, friends, as inspiration tells us, it is a very deadly thing when the enemy of souls is in control of whether it be a person or a system because it could do massive havoc to those within its sphere of influence. And yes, nine times and half a times. Yes, during the dark ages, we saw a piece of that, right? <laughs> Amen, good point. So then it says, the message continues in verse three, for all nations have drunk of the wine of the wrath of her fornication, and the kings of the earth have committed fornication with her. And the merchants of the earth are waxed rich through the abundance of her delicacies. Now, in light of that, there's a call. And I heard another voice from heaven saying, what's the call in light of the coming 
downfall of these systems, which has already begun, come out of her, my people, that ye be not partakers of her sins, and that ye receive not of her plagues. Now, friends, is that a heavy message? That's a heavy message, right? I remember when I first heard that message, even though the full time for its fulfillment has not yet come, when I first heard that message, being a part of the system that I was in, I had to make a decision because I realized that one day there is a day coming where upon the churches that have apostatized from the truth, according to the very word of God itself, what is coming to those systems? The seven last plagues. That is wild, but that's what the Bible reveals. So in light of how heavy this message is, I realized that God in his infinite balance, do you know what he does? He doesn't come to the world immediately with that message. Before Revelation chapter 2 to 4, God comes with Revelation 18.1. Before he does 2 to 4, because 2 to 4 is so intense, he starts off with verse 1. And so he starts off, yes, he lifts up the downtrodden law. That's the great authority, right? But then I want you to look at the glory with me. So what we found out so far, we found out that angels in the Bible represent messengers. Paul himself even said that. When he went to the church of Galatia, he was weak, but his message was powerful. He had the thorn in his flesh, which the Bible reveals was his eyesight, which was dim, and it was growing even more dim since the time that he had the scales in his eyes from seeing Jesus, even though those scales fell away. Friends, his eyes began to be dim from that moment onward. And so in light of that, Paul goes to the church at Galatia, and he witnesses to them with the demonstration of the Spirit's power. And it says in Galatians chapter 4 and verse 14 that the church in Galatia received him as an angel of God. He says, not just as an angel of God, you receive me even as Christ Jesus himself. So we're seeing that an angel, as you guys said, represents a messenger. Now we're looking at a group of messengers which would constitute a movement here in Revelation. But then I want us now to look at the word glory. In Exodus chapter 33 and verse 18, God asked Moses a question that no one had ever asked God prior to that. And that was, Lord, show me your glory. When God finally comes in the next chapter, he says, Moses, you cannot see my face, for no man can see my face and live, but I will show you my backward parts. And so as God comes in the next chapter and he reveals his backward parts to Moses, I want you to hold your fingers in your Bibles in Revelation 18 and go with me in your Bibles to the book of Exodus. Now, friends, as we cover this, we're going to Exodus 34, and you could see it on the screen there. But I want to make sure we are covering much today. Does what I'm saying make sense? And if it does, just give me a shout-out by saying amen. This makes sense. All right. All right. Hopefully I can make a pamphlet on this at some point, and I could share it with each and every one of you if there are areas in which this doesn't make sense. 
So Exodus chapter 34, verses five through seven, God passes before Moses, and look at what he says. And the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there. That's with Moses. And proclaimed the name of the Lord. But you remember, what did Moses ask to see? His glory. But when God comes, he mentions his name, and the Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, that is Jehovah, the Lord God, that is Jehovah God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, and that will by no means clear the guilty, visiting, that is visiting in judgment, the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and upon the children's children unto the third and fourth generation. And the reason that it says to the third and fourth generation is because the third and fourth generation continued in the sins of their fathers. God does not judge another generation for the guilt of the previous generation unless that generation decides, I'm going to continue doing the same sins that my forefathers did. So God is fear. But what we're seeing here is when God appears to Moses and he reveals his glory, he proclaims his name, and then he proclaims his character. So therefore, God's glory is synonymous with his name, which is a revelation of his character. And you find that in the Old Testament as well. Jacob, does anyone remember what the word Jacob means? Heel biter and deceiver. Yeah, exactly. So his name means heel biter and deceiver. Now, does anyone know what Jacob was for the majority of his life? A heel biter and a deceiver. Until... He wrestled with the angel of the Lord. And when he wrestled with the angel of the Lord on the verge just before meeting his brother Esau, who he thought would kill him, in that wrestling, his character was transformed. We are told in the writings of the messenger of the Lord, oh, how few know what it means to wrestle with God. Friends, all of us are called to wrestle with the angel of the Lord. Do you know that? Because it is in the wrestling. That is, what does that mean? It is to trust in God when everything is dark. It is to depend on Jesus and come to him in prayer and struggle with him in prayer, even if all hope seems lost. It is to depend upon God's heart, as my great-grandmother said, even when you cannot trace his hand. It is to know that he loves you even when you don't feel that he loves you. That is what it means to keep pressing on even though everything looks chaotic while you're in the valley. That is what it means to wrestle with God, to never let go of his hand, even when things don't look like we desire them to look, friends. 
to know that God is working on our behalf. You know, it's interesting because even while he was wrestling there with the angel of the Lord, God was working upon Esau's heart. Even when we can't see God working, he's working. And so our work is to trust in him even when we can't feel that. Friends, that is what changes the character of a human being into the very image of his maker. And so, once Jacob had wrestled with the angel of the Lord, does anyone remember what his name was changed to? Israel, right? Meaning one who has wrestled and prevailed with Jehovah. And so his character was totally changed. So we see that a person's name represents their character. So the name of God then would represent his character. So the glory is represented in the name, which is a revelation of the character. Therefore, if A equals B equals C, then A can equal C, which means God's glory can equal his character. So the glory in the Bible of God represents God's character. Now, why is that important? Because if you were to take all of those characteristics, God said, I am merciful, I am gracious, abundant in truth, all of these things, I am just. If we were to take all of those characteristics and summarize them in one word, what would it be? Why is God just? Why is he merciful? Why is he gracious? Why is he all of these things? That's right. You guys got it. First John chapter 4 and verse 8. He that loveth not his brother knows not God, for God is love. So therefore, if we summarize the character of God in one word, it would be love. Now, I asked the Lord in studying this, Lord, where can I see the demonstration of that love in its climactic point? Where can I see what love looks like? What's that? Throughout the Bible, this is true? That's right. Hold your fingers and go with me in your Bibles to the book of Romans chapter 5 and verse 8. So hold your fingers there in Revelation 18. And this is where we talk about the last ray. This is where we talk about the last ray. All right? Revelation chapter, I mean, Romans chapter 5 and verse 8. When you are there, say amen. Amen. So it says there, but God commendeth. Anyone has another translation? God demonstrates. So if we were to look to see what God is about to show us, God is saying, here it is. But God demonstrates his love toward us. That's Romans 5 and verse 8. All right, so if we were to look for what God's love looks, looks like, here it is. Romans chapter 5 and verse 8, but God commendeth, or God demonstrates his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners. Christ did what? Died for us. So that means if we were to look for a place in all of history and we said, man, where can I find the love of God in its climactic point? Where would we look? At the cross of Christ. Therefore, what do we see? Love looks like sacrifice. 
That means if I truly love someone, I will be willing to sacrifice my resources for that individual. If I truly love someone, that's where it gets even more touchy because Christ has called us to even love our enemies. <laughs> so if I truly love my enemy, what is the ultimate thing that I would be willing to do for them? Die for them. Oh, that's heavy, man. That's heavy. But this is what God is showing. Now, of course, I always preface it by saying this. That doesn't mean that if someone has abused you or continually abuses you, that you don't take the necessary precautions in cutting, that, cutting away from that person. But what I am saying is this, that the supernatural love of God would lead us to do things that goes beyond our ability to really comprehend at times. Does that make sense? Do you guys see the balance of what I'm saying, right? So I'm not saying go into a situation where you're being tormented or tortured. That's not what I'm saying. But what I'm saying is that the supernatural love of God leads us to do something that will bring about a change in our Christian experience and a change in the lives of others. So what we found out so far is this then, that the glory of God equals the character of God, which equals the love of God, which was manifested in the cross of Christ. And that very principle of selfless love should be manifested in our lives. So when Revelation 18 and verse 1 says it this way, and I'm going to read it to you now in light of the interpretation that we have seen from the Bible. No private interpretation here. We've seen it unlocked from Scripture. And after these things, I saw another angel come down from heaven. So that would read then, and after these things, I saw a movement ordained of heaven, having God's word, meaning having his authority. And the earth, meaning this is a worldwide movement now, was lightened with that angel's character, which is what? The character of who? God. So that angel illuminated the world then, but what do we find out is the character of God? It is equal to love, and that love was manifested where? At the cross. So there's coming a point, friends, where the whole earth will be illuminated with what? The glory of God, that's true, but what did we, where did we see that glory is revealed? At the cross. So that means there's coming a time where the whole world will be illuminated with the message of Calvary. Not only in word, but seeing the very self-sacrificing principle of Calvary in the life of the saint. Friends, it is not a proclamation of the three angels' messages that will end the world. It is a demonstration of it. It is not the proclamation of Calvary and what Jesus did 2,000 years ago that will end the world. It is a demonstration of the love that was manifested there. God is desiring to use men and women like us, broken and mended by God, to express that love to those who are still broken. He has to have a conduit 
through which he can show the glory. That men, as they look into our lives, and women, as they look into our lives, they can see, wow, I know what Calvary is like because I have seen the self-sacrificing principle of the cross in this person's life. And friends, that's why now the world will then be willing to listen to the next part. <laughs> Verses 2 to 4. The world will only be willing to know what you know when they first know that you care for them. And you've heard it before. Men and women are only willing to know what we know when they know how much we care for them. God did not save through John, for God so loved the world that he sat on his celestial throne, looked down and said, I love you. Is that what the Bible tells us? <laughs> not my Bible, right? God so loved the world that he gave. He did something about our plight. That means if I love a person, it doesn't matter how much prophecy I know, friends. If I am not willing to go out and meet a person's needs and where they are, friends, <laughs> I could know all the prophecy in the world and still be like that man who perished in Jerusalem. God says, Hence, hence, this is what we read. And this is one of my favorite statements in all the scripture. The message is so intense that the people of the world need a demonstration of the message before they hear about this prophecy. That's why Revelation, of course, this just makes sense. Revelation chapter 18 and verse 1 comes before Revelation 18 verses 2 to 4. Before God ever tells the people to come out through his people, he gives a powerful demonstration of the love of Calvary. And when men see that love, they'll be willing to hear what we have to say. But before then, this is why many don't necessarily care about the peculiar truths that we possess as a movement. They have to see that we are really interested in their lives. That's why Jesus, when it came to Jesus, what did Jesus do? He met the person where they were. He won their confidence, won their trust, met their needs. And then the final thing that he told them was, follow me. But there was something that he had already built up. There was a reputation that that person felt like, I feel like I can trust this person. I feel like I can follow them wherever they want me to go because they, they did so much for me. That's what God wants to do with the Seventh-day Adventist movement. He wants to have a people that are so compassionate in meeting the needs of others that when we finally tell them what's happening in the world, they will be willing to listen. Hence, I ask you this question. Powerful question, and this is the statement actually based on, based on our title for the message. The last message of mercy to be given to the world is what? A revelation of his character of love. The children of God are to manifest his glory in their own life, not just words, in their own life and character. They are to reveal what the grace of God has done for them. That's what brings about the end of the world. 
What has God done for you and I? Christ Object Lessons, page 415. Therefore, I ask you the question. Some of you, you probably know where I'm going, but I'm going to pose this question to you. So in light of that then, what do you think then is the strongest argument in favor of the gospel that would cause people to say, man, I want to hear about this gospel you're talking about, this everlasting gospel, this, this three angels' messages, this gospel of grace. What do you think is the strongest argument in favor of the gospel itself? Now, what's that? Okay, demonstration of love. Anyone else? Christ dying on the cross. Anyone else? What Christ has done in our lives? The good news? All right. Now, friends, I'll be honest with you. I used to think that the most powerful argument in, in argu argument in favor of the gospel was having a knowledge of what, what was that? What was that? Say that again. Okay, character. But I, I was a little more messed up than that. I thought that if I could meet someone and we have a, have a theological argument, and I take out the Bible like a samurai sword, and I cut them into a few pieces, then whoa, this was, the, this was the strongest argument in favor of the gospel. It actually pushed people away. And then I left there wondering, what happened? Like, there's something wrong with this person. Not realizing the problem was, was me, right? So then I saw this statement I'm about to show you, and it blew my mind, friends. Are you ready for it? This is what it says. This is the statement here. The strongest argument in favor of the gospel is a loving and lovable Christian. Well. So the question is, are we lovable? When someone thinks about you, do they think, man, I could just hang around this person all day. <laughs> I had to ask myself that question. And you see, that's why while the religious leaders hated Christ, the common people loved him. The only way that they could unite with the scribes and the Pharisees to crucify Jesus was that the scribes and the Pharisees had to influence them intensely through fear. But friends, left to their own devices, the Pharisees themselves said, if we don't stop him, the whole world would turn to him. Because you see, as much as Jesus stood seriously for the truth, the way in which he did it, inspiration says he was the most attractive person. She says Christ is attractive in our lives, are we known for that? At one point in my life, I believe the strongest argument is in favor of the gospel was to know the dates of different prophecies. Now, friends, does that have its place? Yes. We must know the truths for our time. I fear that many are leaving our movement because they don't know these truths. But what I realized is that 
That is not the foundation. I tell you the truth, friends. Many are leaving this movement for this specific reason. Because they go to places, and as they go to some churches, and this could be Adventist, it could be non-Adventist. There are many churches that have that attitude. Person goes there, and as they go there, they have left their other church, and they went to this church, and they stayed at this church. Because while the people may not have had an understanding of the deep truths for, their, for this time, they were extremely kind in how they treated that individual. And so the person said, you know what? Rather than go to a place where the truth is proclaimed, I will go to a place where I am loved. Now, is that imbalanced? Yes, it is. But it is understandable. Many of the people that are leaving the movement are leaving not because there are any, there's any problems with the truths that we believe. These truths are set upon a perfect foundation, we are told. But they are leaving the faith because when they gathered among those people, they did not sense the love of God. They did not sense that that person cared about their life deeply. And so they preferred relationship over doctrine. Now that's bad. But friends, it is understandable. By the way, what is, what is, Christ, what is Christ calling us to do then? He's calling us to be the epitome of both. That when people come to the movement, and this is why I love Pasadena, Pasadena Church, right? When you come here, it is a church that is welcoming. Of course, we can always work on becoming more, right? Can always be work on becoming more transformed, better. A place that shows love and respect, a place that cares about the plight of others as well as the truths of God's word, right? Hence, after being a loving and lovable Christian, and this, this really hit me, man, because I had to ask myself, am I a person that people like being around? That other people, they, when they think of Akeem, they're like, man, I could hang out with this brother and we could talk about the truths of God's word all day long. And I know he would share it with me in such a way that when I left him, even if we disagreed with each other, I know that he cares about me. Hence, the second part is this. Now, don't think I, I left this out. The second aspect that persuades others of the truths of God's word, it says, but sanctify the Lord in your hearts and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asks you a reason of the hope that is in you. But notice how you do it. You do it with that samurai sword cutting people in pieces, not respecting them. No, what does the Bible say? In meekness and fear. That means in kindness and that word fear there actually means to revere. It actually means to respect someone. So when I tell someone else about the truth, I'm telling them, respecting them, knowing that, hey, this person can very well say, I'm not going to listen to this guy. And we walk away, and I completely respect that individual. Friends, this is what God is calling us to, to have that kind of mindset so that when people think about the movement, 
They think about relationship and they think about truth. We have ever been known as Seventh-day Adventists as a people of the book. But friends, inspiration tells us that even in the time of the messenger of the Lord, the people had proclaimed the present truth and the law, the law, the law, until they became as dry as the hills of Gilboa. They were proclaiming the truth with power, but they were legalists. The vitalizing power of an experience and a relationship with Christ was missing from God's people. Oh, let it not be so today. Let it be that we have a solid love relationship with Christ that is so powerful that it is permeated in our lives, it flows through our lives to others, and that others then, as a result of seeing that love, when we finally tell them, come out of her, my people, that ye be not partakers of her sins, and that you receive not of her plagues, that the people having seen the love of Jesus flowing forth from us will say, you know what? I'll come out. I'll come out. I will willingly join a place where I see self-sacrifice. Friends, that is what the world is actually looking for. As worldly as the worldly may be, they are thirsting for something that they do not yet possess, but they see it in the true Christian. May that be our experience, friends. The last ray of mercy to go to the world is a revelation of his character of love. Do you desire for that to be your experience as I desire it to be mine? Amen. Well, I ask you to stand with me as we pray. And I will, I will kneel as you stand, friends. Father, we have gone through much today. But I pray, O oh Lord, that it made sense. Lord, help us to be the demonstrations of kindness, of meekness, of firmness that you desire for us to be. Help us to stand for the truth as Christ stood for it, firmly, at times boldly, but Lord, also in meekness and fear. Help us to respect others. And Lord, as they see that love flowing forth from our lives, that they would think that when they think of this movement, they would think not just of a people of the book, but they would think of a people that are truly in love with Jesus and in love with their fellow man. Help us to not just be loving, but to be lovable. Do this work in our lives, I pray in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Please look us up online at the1-80.org and at the 180 YouTube channel. Please reach out to us with any questions or prayer requests. Until next time, thanks for listening.